the funding should follow the child. After all, education funding is supposed to be meant for educating children, not for propping up and protecting a particular institution, whether it's public or private. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show, where all we do is try to save America. And this week, we are saving America by saving America's schools. But really put a better way, we're saving America's children from America's school system, in particular, the teachers unions. That's a way of saying that I'm extraordinarily excited to have as my guest this week, a longtime friend of mine, both in policy work, professional work, and that's Dr. Corey DeAngelis. Corey, thanks for joining me. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So one more mention to our audience here who are watching, this is going to be a high energy episode because of you. Let's go. All right. That's right. That's right. So we're excited because in all of the time that we've been working on public policy, I know I'm in public policy because of education policy, and I know that's the case for you, that we've never seen the opportunity that is in front of us. Am I mistaken? Uh, no, you're absolutely correct. We're seeing the biggest victories we've ever seen when it comes to educational freedom and school choice. Just last month, Arizona passed the most expansive education savings account program in the nation. Every single family, regardless of income, regardless of background, will be able to take their kids' taxpayer-funded state-level education dollars to the education providers of their choosing. Happens to be about $7,000 in Arizona. You can take it to the public school if you want. You can go to a private school, charter school, or home-based education option. Arizona just cemented itself as the number one state for educational freedom the gold standard of school choice policy. And I hope this encourages other states, particularly red states, to get into some friendly competition to empower all families to choose the best education providers for their kids. And that's just one of the victories. We have so much to talk about when it comes to the year of school choice last year, victories at the Supreme Court. Uh, the wind is at our backs. That's right. And and in that proverbial Overton window, which those of us who do policy for a living referred to as, as that metaphor that allows us to know what's feasible, never has more been feasible in the world of education reform. And that's really what you and I are going to talk about. In fact, we're going to have a very hard time jamming all of that into 45 minutes. We're going to do it. And I'm so excited about that. I even forgot to say who you work for, the American Federation for Children. Uh, yeah. Um, senior fellow at the American Federation for Children. And again, it's, it's good to be on the podcast with you. And this time in person, as opposed to uh, via Zoom. Yeah, that's right. So being a Southerner, I always like to know people's story because it lets me know, in my simple way of thinking, where to put them. And you and I, as, as we've done some battle together, that is shoulder to shoulder, particularly in Texas, have talked about your story, that is how you got into education reform. But I think it's really important for our audience to hear that. Those who are watching or listening who are active on social media know that you are the tip of the spear for the education reform movement. And I really do mean that. And I'm grateful to you for that. But we, of course, have some folks who aren't there and would, I think, really be inspired by how you got to do what you're doing. So actually, I like to think of myself as a Southerner as well, even though I don't have the accent, even though and as well, I live here in the swamp in D.C. I've been here for quite a while now, but I grew up in Texas, in San Antonio, where I went to government schools the entire time. So if I make any mistakes on this podcast, it's probably why. Uh, but now, to, to be real, I, I attended a magnet school, which is still run by the district, but it's a school of choice, and it's a step in the right direction. Uh, and I felt like that had a positive impact on my life trajectory. It was actually located on the same physical campus as my residentially assigned government-run school. Uh, and I saw a night and day difference in the opportunities that were available to me 
uh, during my time in high school. So I would like more families to have access to educational opportunities, but it shouldn't be limited to schools that are run by the government. Your child's education dollars should follow you to any provider of the service, whether it's run by the district, a charter school, a private entity, or whether it's a home-based education option like a micro school or for expenses like uh, private tutoring. The funding should follow the child. After all, education funding is supposed to be meant for educating children, not for propping up and protecting a particular institution, whether it's public or private. Well, that's well said. And and we're going to to get back to that wonderful claim you just made. But I think it's really important, especially for skeptics of your position to know that you're coming at this never having spent a day in a private school, right? You, you yeah, did, nor have I, other than running a couple. You went to University of Texas at San Antonio, studied business administration, then economics, did your PhD in education policy at the University of Arkansas, right? Yeah, and that that's also part of my story as well as why I'm so interested in education reform. During my bachelor's and master's in economics, the light bulb went off in my head, uh, which is the problem with monopolies. And the biggest monopoly we have is the government-run school system, or at least one of the most problematic because it's dealing with the education of our children. And when you have monopolies, you don't have a strong incentive to do the right thing for your customers and to spend additional funding wisely. And we see that play out decade after decade in the government-run school system. In the United States, for example, according to National Center for Education Statistics data, between 1970 and about 2019, the latest data we have available, we've increased per-pupil education expenditures in the government school system nationwide by about 152% after adjusting for inflation. The outcomes haven't gotten 152% better, and uh, teacher pay has actually only increased by a fraction of that amount, only by about 11% in real terms. So when you hear teachers complaining that that they're having to dig into their pockets to pay for supplies each year, I actually do feel kind of bad for them. But the problem isn't with their competition in terms of private and charter schools. The problem is that their employer happens to be a massive geographic monopoly that has no incentive to spend money wisely or to treat their employees well either. Uh, so there's a, lo- a lot of benefit that can be had through competition, through school choice. And it's not just the families who can benefit, it's the teachers who can benefit too. There have actually been five studies I've seen on the topic, all five of them finding statistically significant positive effects of private and charter school competition on the teacher salaries in the public school system. So this is a win-win solution. And uh, it, it really, the only uh, pr- people that have a problem with it are the teachers union bosses who don't have the same incentives as the actual teachers on the ground. And then just one more piece about my story. I did the PhD at the University of Arkansas under a few great education researchers, one of them being at the Heritage Foundation now, Jay Green, uh, but also Patrick Wolf and uh, Dr. Bob Maranto, who were great uh, dissertation advisors. But my studies there, the first one linked private school choice in Milwaukee to crime reduction later on in life. And that kind of thrust me into the national conversation on school choice. And the bulk of my research since then has focused on non-academic benefits of school choice, whether it's in terms of crime reduction, reductions in teenage pregnancies, improvements in satisfaction and safety, and just happiness of the children being there. And from what this is also plays into the story of what we're seeing today. Families, when their schools were closed, woke up because they saw that their their schools weren't just educating, or they weren't even doing that all that well, but they were indoctrinating kids. And so this values-based alignment with between families and schools is a part of the conversation that we've seen over the past couple of years. The teachers unions have overplayed their hand. Parents have woken up and they're pushing back. They felt powerless in 2020 and 2021. 
and they don't want their kids to, to be indoctrinated to hate them when they grow up. So these families have mobilized. They're pushing back at the school boards. They're pushing back and going to vote at the ballot box. And that's uh, swaying politicians to do the right thing and listen to them to fund students as opposed to systems. And we'll get into the the political consequences of this, which we, in the way you and I think, will lead to policy consequences. But I sort of have to move chronologically in my own thinking. And so when I hear someone like you or my colleague and our mutual friend, Dr. Jay Green, talk about all these statistics and the correlations that that y'all have been able to prove, of course, I know that those are credible claims. Y'all have your your policy opponents, but no one has been able to assail your work on the on the matter of research credibility. So those are uncontested claims. But this is the point, Corey. I then think about, well, how can we translate that into policy wins? And at least for me, the easiest way is to think about, you know, what's what's that hypothetical picture where all of that's coming to bear? And I think you touched on it, which is a, a mom or a dad, but I think especially a single mom during COVID, she has to continue to work. If if her employer is saying work from home, she still has to work. Her child or children are in the room next door or in the same room on a different computer, which may she may in fact had to go by before the school district could even move. And then she realizes not only is there indoctrination, she's largely apolitical like most Americans. Doesn't mean they're dumb. It just means that they're actually smart. They're not paying a lot of attention to what goes on in DC, but they don't have time to fight the indoctrination, but they do because the greatest love someone knows is for their child. And then she realizes, oh my gosh, not only is there indoctrination, they're not teaching my child math or reading or writing. And then, of course, inspired, she's, this is where I'm really getting to the punchline, she tries to penetrate the bureaucracy of her local school district. And that's where the statistic you mentioned about inflation-adjusted spending from 1970 to 2019 increasing 152%. But for example, teacher pay, just 11%. All of that, almost all of that has gone to administrative bloat. That's not a conservative screed. <laughs> that affects that mom and American families. And, and it seems as if conservatives are, for that matter, just education reformers, regardless of their political ideology, finally have understood how to make those connections. Is that what we're seeing on, on the ground politically? Yeah, it's a parent revolution. And for far too long in K-12 education, the only special interests were the teachers unions, superintendent unions, the employee unions. But now, finally, there's a new special interest group in town, parents, and they aren't going away anytime soon. And they're going, and they're going to fight for the right to educate their kids as they see fit harder than anyone will ever fight to take that right away from them. So we've seen a lot of victories lately. But I'm optimistic that that momentum is going to continue going forward because, again, parents aren't going to forget what they saw in 2020, and they're 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 they've woken up and they're never going to sleep ever again. Even though the school's open, mm. those problems are still there. And parents, like you said, par care about their kids more than anybody else. They are a stronger special interest than any employee union will ever be. So we're going to get in again to the 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 political consequences, but let's sort of set out the policy agenda. Based on those realities, based on your research, based on what we know from parents who are really behind this parent revolution, what are the steps to the policy reform at the state level and also the federal level, if any? 
Yeah, you can pass a, a school choice bill at the state level. That's typically how it's done. And uh, we've seen most victories in red states recently, but 31 states already have some form of private school choice initiatives. What most states are pushing recently is something called an education savings account program, which is what Arizona just passed, the biggest, most expansive ESA program in the nation. But the basic way that that, that uh, bears out is that if you want to keep your public school, you can keep your public school. If you like your public school, you can keep your public school. And the full funding would follow that your child to that institution. But if not, about half of that funding, typically it's the state level portion, will follow your child to an education savings account. Some states like New Hampshire got, uh, uh, they, they, they called theirs education freedom accounts because, you know, live free or die out there in New Hampshire. But you can take that to a private school to pay for tuition and fees. You could use it for a charter school, for uh, home-based educational opportunities, or any other approved education expenses. It's the purest form of funding students, not systems. It's funding the student directly, empowering parents to choose. And the way that that works out is, you know, you typically have a bill that starts in the House or the Senate in the, at the state level, and they pass it through. Uh, each chamber goes to the governor to sign, and then there, there you go. Then it has to be implemented on the ground. Uh, but that's basically how this works out. And parents have been rallying around these bills to push for real reform. And politicians have been listening to them, particularly because at this moment in time, to come out against parental rights in education is emerging as a form of political suicide. I mean, we saw this happen with Terry McAuliffe in Virginia. He said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. And it's like, dude, are you serious? After the school closures in your state of Virginia, one of the worst states for reopening schools, parents weren't having it. And he just quadrupled down on his anti-parent rhetoric. And Glenn Youngkin was smart. He cracked the code at getting Republicans to win on the issue of education. Instead of backing off of the issue, Glenn Youngkin leaned into it and started to understand that voters don't want to hear that right now. And it's deeply unpopular, this whole, it takes a village uh, mentality that your kids belong to the government or that parents shouldn't have a say. That is an indefensible position, especially in 22, 2022, after the school closures, after the indoctrination that has been happening in the schools. And uh, Terry McAuliffe was in a catch-22 situation. If he would have come out for parental rights, well, then his boss, Randy Weingarten of the AFT, would have been mad at him. So instead, he had Randy Weingarten stumping for him the night before the election. That was the nail in the coffin moment for some voters who went on CNN, a mom, uh, a Virginia mom, uh, used that quote that that was a nail in the coffin moment for her. And we've since seen two polls just last month find that Republicans for the first time ever that I've seen um, be up on the issue of education. And both of the polls were commissioned by left-leaning groups, one of them being the teachers union, Randy Weingarten's own union. Talk about a epic self-own to commission a poll to show Republicans up on education by one point. And then the, the uh, Democrats for Education Reform found Republicans up on the issue of education by three points. And now you might say, oh, that's only one to three points. But look at historically speaking, Gallup, for example, in 2017, found Democrats up on the issue of education by 19 points. So that's a, a, a double digit, you know, 20 point swing in the direction towards Republicans. This is a golden opportunity for Republicans on the issue of education. If they're smart, they'll follow the blueprint laid out by, by Glenn Youngkin and support parental rights in education. And it's hard to underscore how important that polling is. It, to my knowledge, I could be wrong. I didn't check this before recording, but I, to my knowledge, even in the two prior heady days of conservative education reform, the late 80s under Secretary Bennett, 
And about 20 years ago under George W. Bush, now we have some problems, uh, all, all respect intended to those, those luminaries about the federal government taking such a large role. But the point is, if you looked at Gallup and Pew polls then, conservatives were just trying to close the gap yeah. in terms of trust on that. And, and all of that to say, because we're not here to talk about polls, is that that's a symptom of what you and I know has been going on in homes and in classrooms for decades now. And it seems as if Americans are now fed up with all of this very generous funding that Americans give to public schools, not quite being for naught, but it certainly is not helping kids. No, I mean, you look at the trends over time, we throw more and more money at the problem without seeing that the real uh, issue is is deeper than that. You can't just throw more money at the problem without fixing the system itself and expect things to get any better. The, the money's wasted year after year. It goes towards administrative bloat and staffing surges, which, which are great for uh, teacher union bosses like Randy Weingarten, who make over $560,000 a year, according to the latest data that I've seen, because more dues-paying members more means more revenues for the union so they can push their political nonsense. And I mean, uh, the AFT's campaign contributions in 2022, according to, to Open Secrets website, suggests that 99.997% of the AFT campaign contributions have gone to Democrats as opposed to Republicans in 2022. They're a political apparatus. They're not about education. They're about indoctrination. And so much of the public has woken up to the nonsense that's happening in the public schools and also with the teachers' unions, which is not the same thing as the individual teachers. Right. And so let's say someone's listening or watching this and they say, okay, Corey, I, I, I agree with you. And yet it seems as if your policy prescription would take money away from the public schools and make the situation worse. How would you respond to that devil's advocate question? The money doesn't belong to the government schools. Education funding is meant for educating children, not for propping up and protecting a particular institution, whether it's public or private. And by the way, why would giving families a choice defund your public schools? If they're doing a good job, they won't lose any kids at all. So you're essentially telling on yourself when you suggest that giving families a choice will lead to a mass exodus from your schools. I think there are a lot of great public schools. I have confidence in the public school system to compete. The people making this argument don't have any confidence whatsoever in the public schools. So they're the ones that are anti-public school, not our side. But at the end of the day, the money doesn't belong to the schools. Uh, and you should be able to choose your public schools if you like. And oh, by the way, like I mentioned earlier in Arizona, the public schools spend about $13,000, $14,000 per kid. The amount that follows the child is only about half. Again, because it's only the state level portion, it's about 7000 so what happens in the public schools is they get to keep thousands of dollars, the local and federal funding, for students are no longer educating. So on a per pupil basis, instead of having thirteen or fourteen thousand, they might even have fifteen or sixteen thousand dollars per student based on how many students are leaving. In what other industry does this happen? I mean, just imagine if you stopped shopping at I don't know Harris Teeter or Safeway and you wanted to go to Trader Joe's, and Safeway got to keep half your grocery funding in perpetuity. That'd be a good deal for Safeway. Uh, and similarly, this is a good deal for the public schools that they get to keep any money at all for students who are no longer educating. And the last point I'll make on that this is that school choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats. 25 of 28 studies on the topic find statistically significant positive effects of private school choice competition on the outcomes in the public schools. So we have so much evidence on that. There's also a peer-reviewed meta-analysis from UT Austin researchers, for example, Getting all of the effect sizes together, still finding in this uh, journal article in 2019 in a journal called Educational Policy, 
statistically significant overall positive effects of private school choice competition on the outcomes of the students in the public schools. This is, again, a win-win situation, unless you're Randy Weingarten. And, and to underscore that, and, and I think you were, you were a part of the episode I'm about to recount, in 2017 in the Texas legislative session, many of us across the education reform movement, you, we at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, Heritage was involved, our mutual friends, Lindsey Burke and Jay Green and others, at, on this special needs education savings account bill. And I, and I mentioned this to people in the audience who may not be specialists in this because it's telling about how protective and territorial the teachers union is. The way that bill was constructed to cut to the chase was that there would be the state allotment, the, the state funding of students that would follow those students if in fact they had a, a special need. It seemed like a slam dunk from the standpoint of charity, right? If nothing else. But it kept the, the existing school district where those students were not just whole, but a 10% plus up to sort of, it's sort of like a political giveaway, right? Those of us on the reform side said, whatever it takes to help these million sure. kids, but they rejected it and they stopped that bill from getting passed. This is endemic of what happens in state legislatures all the time. Well, it's because they want power and power isn't just in money, but it's also in being able to control other people's children. And that's a problem. And this is what's coming out uh, with the Virginia governor's race, with other uh, dem democratic politicians essentially stepping in over and over again across the country is it's it's a battle of who do the kids belong to? Does it, do the, the, is the community responsible of determining what, what the education of the child looks like? Or are parents the primary decision makers when it comes to their kids' education? Republicans are, are of the, the latter issue in, in general nationwide. And I think that's why we're seeing Republicans up on the issue of education, because your kids don't belong to the government. Parents are the best decision makers. They know and care more about their kids' uh, educational outcomes than anybody else. And they certainly know more about their kids' than bureaucrats sitting in offices hundreds of miles away. So <clears throat> polling on the research has been good. The research is there. The, the, the model legislation is there. And what has not been there, at least to the extent that it is, and this, this is evident if you just look at primary elections in states this summer, is that voters, of course, are aware too. So give us some examples. These are, I want to be clear, <laughs> neither endorsements from you nor endorsements from me. These are things that have happened in the past. And we're just looking at the data and understand that there is an emerging consensus among state legislators in a number of states that education reform is a top issue. Yeah, there's a lot of examples. I already went over the general election results from Virginia, Terry McAuliffe uh, being the anti-parent uh, candidate. We had examples from the National School Boards Association at a national level. They said they colluded with the Biden administration and sent a letter to the Department of Justice implying that some parents should be investigated for domestic terrorism. That caused a fierce backlash from parents, and that caused 26 states in the last half a year or so to pull out of the National School Boards Association. We might as well rename that organization to, I don't know, the Regional School Boards Association, the on the West Coast School, well, California polled as well. So um, they essentially imploded, and it's their own fault, and it's glorious. This should be a message to politicians and organizations that you can't abuse parental rights and education anymore. Parents aren't going to stand for that for it and they're going to push back and they're never going to sit down and shut up no matter how many times members of the establishment try to label them as domestic terrorists. But when it comes to political elections in the primaries as, as well, uh, candidates supported by the American Federation for Children Action Fund, for example, the latest numbers that I've seen is that 79% of the candidates supported by the American Federation for Children Action Fund and its state affiliates have won their primary elections 
and not just easy races, also incumbents losing their seats. One great example is from Iowa, for example. The, the governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds, is a staunch supporter of educational freedom. I'd say one of the best, if not the best, education governors when it comes to securing and pushing for and actually fighting to get uh, school choice policies passed. Uh, their Senate just uh, this, this past year passed a education savings account program, which is a great form of school choice. It's, the, I would say, the purest form of funding students, not systems. And they had all Republicans vote in favor of the legislation, except for one. Uh, all, yeah, all Republicans but one joined the Democrats, and it easily passed the Iowa Senate. Iowa House is 60% Republican. 60 of the 100 House seats are Republican. They couldn't get it done this year for whatever reason. And uh, Governor Reynolds kept the legislature past the 100-day mark, which is uh, something that uh, isn't done very often in the state of Iowa. And uh, fought really hard to get her uh, pr preferred education savings account bill passed. The House couldn't do it. So she went out and said, you know what, I'm going to endorse some people in the primaries. She endorsed nine candidates. And on most of those races, school choice was the clear defining li dividing line. And eight, and, and eight of those nine uh, uh, races that were endorsed by um, Governor Kim Reynolds won those races. So it looks like Iowa, all eyes on Iowa next session. It appears that they're going to be able to pass an education savings account bill next year. And the question isn't whether they're going to do it. It's how big and how far they're going to go. Hopefully they uh, follow in the footsteps of Governor Doug Ducey and the Arizona legislature, which passed, again, the gold standard of education freedom. Every single family is eligible. We already fund education for every single kid. Every single child, regardless of income, regardless of background, is guaranteed a taxpayer-funded education. Well, that same funding should follow the child to wherever they want to go, regardless of their background. And look, in Arizona, they were able to get it done with one-seat majorities for Republicans in the House and the Senate. So if you can do it in a state like Arizona, which is more purplish, that just has a one-seat majority in the House and Senate, and if you're a Republican state in particular, a red state like Texas or Oklahoma, you should be able to get the same thing done uh, this coming session and empower all families to choose the best education for their kids. And at the end of the day, there's other things that could be done to tweak the system. But the only way to truly secure parental rights in education is to fund students directly, empower families to choose, and then uh, they can get into a school that best aligns with their values and meets their child's needs in other ways. Because at the end of the day, uh, if you need an exit option and the other accountability mechanisms don't work, families need that exit option. And bottom-up accountability is the strongest form of accountability that exists in education, just as with any other good or service. So in addition to all of this good news, there was another really vital part of this recipe of, of this emerging success. And it came from the U.S. Supreme Court with the main decision. Explain why that's so important, both in substance, but also politically at the state legislative level. Yeah, so this is the Carson v. Macon decision that just came out in June of 2022. Uh, it was a ruling in favor of parental rights in education. I'd say it's a victory for religious liberties and just school choice in general. In the opinion of the court, they made it clear that school choice is not an issue with the so-called separation of church and state, which is not found in the U.S. Constitution. It's more about the government establishing a religion. Uh, so they're more talking about the Establishment Clause, which has been clear with, with uh, Supreme Court precedent for about two decades now since the Zelman v. Simmons-Harris case in 2002 that had to do with an Ohio voucher program. 
But the long story short is school choice has nothing, no problem with the establishment clause for the same reason that Pell Grants do not violate the establishment clause. And the same thing with the GI Bill, same thing with pre-K programs. With all these in- initiatives, taxpayer funding goes to the family or the student, and then they can choose a public or private religious or non-religious provider. You can take your Pell Grant funding, for example, which is public taxpayer money, to Notre Dame. You can take it to a religious university, and no one has any issue with that. No one says a word about it. And the reason that it doesn't violate the Establishment Clause is because, again, the funding goes to the family or the student, and they they have a choice to take it to religious or non-religious institutions. The same thing is the case with school choice. So this should embolden families to fight back even harder, and it should embolden politicians to feel encouraged to push for school choice and not have to worry about arguments from the other side. We have tons of Supreme Court precedent now that school choice is permissible under the U.S. Constitution. And Carson B. Macon actually took it a step further because it had to do with whether a state could discriminate against religious families in schools participating in school choice programs, which should have already been clear in the 2020 case, which was Espinosa v. Montana. Uh, they, which they ruled that the quote is something along the lines uh, from Chief Justice John Roberts that a state need not subsidize uh, private education, but once it decides to do so, it cannot exclude schools solely because they are religious, something along those lines. And Maine was doing that. They had a program that was a school choice program. And when it was first started in the late 1700s, it's called a, a town tuitioning program. If you didn't have a government school in your area, you could take a voucher essentially to a, another government-run school in a different area, or you could take it to a private school, religious or non-religious. But in 1981, they changed the law to exclude religious schools, and then you could only take the funding to a public uh, play, uh, school in another place, or you could take it to a private non-religious school. They were discriminating against religious schools and families. It flew in the face of the uh, Espinosa v. Montana decision. So uh, school choice advocates were seeing Carson B. Macon as a slam dunk all along, but it also just goes to show uh, that politicians should have nothing to worry about when it comes to empowering parents. Since they, they should push as hard as possible this coming session. And hey, uh, our friends out in Texas, I've heard at a campaign event from Governor Greg Abbott that we're going to see the the swiftest, strongest push for school choice in Texas history. So let's get it done. Things are a lot different than what they were back in 2017. Texas Republican primary voters, for example, 88% of them on the primary ballot in March 2022 uh, said that they support the school choice proposition, which is a huge surge in support since I last saw it on the Texas primary ballot for Republicans, which was 2018. It jumped nine percentage points in support, up to 88% of Texas Republican primary voters who have woken up and who truly support educational freedom. It's time for legislators in states like Texas to to get the job done like they did in Arizona. And if you're someone in a state, whether it's Texas or another state, where your legislature will be considering education freedom options, you've given us a great menu of of how to message on these issues, particularly those myths that that legislators and some defenders hold up about funding, about public funding of of religious, quote unquote, religious schools, for example. So it seems as if just strategically, there there really isn't any ground left to stand on if for anyone, but especially a right of center legislator, and you've been opposed to school choice. Yeah, exactly. And this has emerged as a political litmus test issue for GOP primary voters. And we've seen victories when it comes to school choice in the Republican primaries. In Texas, for example, and in so many other states, 
school choices on the Republican Party platform in Texas, nationally, and in other states as well. Primary voters, when it comes to Republicans, are highly supportive of school choice policies. And in Texas, um, the GOP just voted on their legislative priorities, and school choice made the top eight legislative priorities for this session. So I'm, I've got all eyes on Iowa. I've got eyes on Texas as well. I've seen some great leadership from Governor Abbott, the most forceful endorsement of school choice that I've seen him make in May of 2020, where he said that the state funding should follow all children to whether it's a public school, private school, or charter school, which includes obviously a private school choice initiative, which could be a voucher program or an education savings account initiative. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But look, this shouldn't be a partisan issue. When you look at the arguments for school choice, this is an equalizer. This is this leads to more competition. It's a win for students, teachers at the same time. It's a win for parental rights and education, which is super popular right now. This is probably why Republicans are up on the issue of education. Hopefully, Democrats come along and get on board and make this a nonpartisan issue because their constituents support it. You look at the latest Real Clear Opinion Research polling nationwide, for example, finding that 72% of Americans in 2022 support school choice. And there was supermajority support in that same poll among Democrats, Republicans, and independents. This should not be a partisan issue. And um, at the end of the day, whether we like to admit it or not, the most advantaged in society already have school choice. They're already at least more likely to have the resources to live in neighborhoods that happen to be, uh, to be assigned to the best, quote unquote, public schools. And they're more likely at least to be able to afford to pay out of pocket for private school tuition and fees. So funding students directly allows more families to access educational opportunities. So in that sense, again, school choice is an equalizer and we should put politics aside and stop listening to the teachers unions and start to listen to parents and do the right thing. It's really that simple. And, and if we look at, at the consequences of everything you've mentioned politically in a place like Texas, one of the key issues that's driving a realignment of Hispanic voters into the center-right coalition, and, and you've been tracking this for years, I have as well, this is not a surprise to us, is the reality that the public school system does not provide equality of opportunity among all of the noble things that the ideals of this republic promise. At the top of the list is equality of opportunity, which is especially noble given how pluralistic, how diverse our society is. I mean, this is something that every American, this ideal, every American should be proud of. By the way, they aren't because our schools, of course, don't like to teach it. We're going to come to that in a minute. But <laughs> The, the political left in this country continues to be beholden to the teachers union at their political peril. And it will be very interesting to see after this election cycle where all of this is really, really clear, the realignment that happens on their side. I think it's going to become a nonpartisan issue. I don't know how long it's going to take, but the path towards it is it could um, actually be bipartisanship through hyper-partisanship. So once Republicans take the blueprint of Glenn Youngkin and lean into this, it's going to be so politically damaging for Democrats. Look, I mean, this already happened before COVID in, in 2018 with DeSantis and his gubernatorial victory. He won, as a, according to a Wall Street Journal opinion piece, because of school choice moms. Florida already had a thriving tax credit scholarship program where a lot of low-income families were already using it. and. Uh, he didn't win by a huge margin. And if you looked at the demographics of the people who voted for him, um, it, uh, the, the Wall Street Journal opinion piece writer claimed that school choice moms tipped the governor's race 
in Florida. And a, a piece of that that's important that I missed is that his opponent uh, was in favor of getting rid of the tax credit scholarship program. So you can essentially look, you're, you're, you're trying to take away a benefit from a low-income family that be- makes education and school choice a higher uh, uh, voting issue. And so uh, in the medium or long term, this could turn into a bipartisan or nonpartisan issue. And I think that's the way it should be done. I don't think it should come to that. I think that this it should just happen this this coming year. People should wake up. But the reality is that politics are a lot more messy than that. And, it has, and a lot of times politics have nothing to do with logic and a lot more to do with power dynamics. And the way to make this bipartisan going forward could be Republicans making it so politically disastrous for Democrats to come out against parental rights and education where they'll have no choice but to finally support parents. Yeah. I mean, just to be really blunt about it, the political left has put their own political power well ahead the well-being of students. And and the way that looks in a campaign is that they, they want to prevent education reformers from having a constituency. They do that by blocking even these rather modest education freedom initiatives, right? And so what makes me think about that is the Florida example. Had Florida not had that tax credit scholarship program, had not there been constituents of that, that is low-income families, most of them of color, whose uh, students, their children were benefiting from this, Ron DeSantis probably wouldn't be the governor of Florida. And, And I think that there is a very strong parallel to Texas generally, and we're not going to swerve into the gubernatorial race there. But it'll be very interesting to see the candidate who's left of center for governor in Texas be on the defensive on this issue, because it really is at a step with where the vast majority of Texans are. Which gets into another uh, reason that this could be politically profitable for Republicans in particular. One, it's just a good idea. And two, um, the winds, the political winds have shifted. Parents support school choice. It's politically damaging to come out against parental rights and education. You had the lieutenant governor candidate in Texas on the Democratic side call parents vouchers, uh, vultures, essentially. He said, vouchers are for vultures. Like, imagine calling low-income kids trapped in failing government schools vultures. He pretty much told Terry McAuliffe, hey, hold up, hold my beer, and I'm going to one-up you on this by coming out against parents and, and, and students stuck in failing schools. But the other kind of piece of this that I didn't really talk about much today is that um, there are a lot of political hypocrites when it comes to school choice who sent their own kids to private school or even attended private schools themselves, which uh, is is an issue at play in the Texas governor's race uh, where you have the Democratic candidate who benefited from having a private school education. And that's great. I'm glad he had that opportunity. But at the same time, why fight against uh, less advantaged families from having that kind of opportunity at the same time? Yeah, it's it's yet another example in a long line of examples of the political left, especially showing how elitist they are and not wanting people who don't come from the means they do. And nothing wrong with that. This is America. It's great that there are people of wealth, but they don't want the equality of opportunity. It really is not a Republican or Democrat thing. It's us versus them. When it's nonstop logical inconsistencies, too. You have the same people who support funding students directly for higher education and pre-K and funding people directly when it comes to groceries and healthcare, but then they oppose it only when it comes to those in-between years of K through 12 education. And then you like the only way to bridge that apparent logical inconsistency is to understand that there's a difference in power dynamics, that choice is the norm for the most part with higher education, pre-K and everything else, but choice threatens an entrenched special interest, which overwhelmingly donates to one party over the other, only when it comes to those in-between years 
of K-12 education. So the status quo, of course, the monopoly fights as hard as possible against any change to the status quo, uh, even if that means trapping low-income kids and failing schools. And the other kind of hypocrisy or logical inconsistency is that the same people who say that you know taxpayers should cover free college for everyone or free pre-K for everyone starting at third grade or at the year uh, three years of age, or the same people who support student loan forgiveness for everyone and having the taxpayer foot the bill. They're the same ones who will say, you already have school choice. You can just, you ha- you can choose a private school today. You can just pay for it out of pocket like I did. Because it's, like, it's easy and cheap, right? Yeah. Mary, Mary Antoinette would be, would be proud. Let them eat cake. The poor people can just, they should just be able to pay for private school already. They, they can do that, right? And it's like, that's not a feasible option for everybody today. And oh, by the way, this is funds that are already being allocated. So it's a limited government proposal, but it's also an equalizer at the same time and that it empowers more families to choose. It's just that uh, the teachers unions aren't really happy about it because they want to keep their dra- gravy train going. They think that they're, that your kids and the education dollars meant for educating them belong to their government institutions. And that's a completely backwards way of thinking about things. It is. I think they're wars of the state. We'll probably have to save that for another episode because we have waning time. And I want to be sure and ask you this question because it's one that in the years we've been doing some work together, we haven't really talked about. So I'm very curious about your answer. And it's this, it's a little bit of a crystal ball question. And so we're going to have a lot of policy success on education freedom over the next year. And that's going to breed an opportunity. It's going to create an opportunity for Americans to, I think, live through a golden age of American education. Because this being on the cusp of breaking this monopoly of the radical left and the teachers unions and all these associate superintendents is an example that in spite of all of America's challenges, it's still America. And you can be the little guy and you can still win. This is the point, Corey. When that happens, then we're going to have an opportunity as a people to rebuild institutions in the image of our philosophical disposition. I don't mean conservative. I mean pro-American. I mean common sense. What do those institutions look like, whether they be schools for elementary kids or universities? Am I, in other words, on the right track and, and being so optimistic? Yeah, I think you're on the right track. This is one area that we can win. It's the silver lining of COVID, as people have put it so many times before. It's woken up individuals. And if we win on the issue of education, a lot of the other problems sort themselves out. Um, when you have less socialist indoctrination happening in the classroom, those same students will be less likely to vote for big government when they grow up. And so even if you're not super thrilled about education reform and that's not your pet policy, well, this will have ripple effects on your policies if you're a free market uh, solutions-based individual. So everybody should care about educational freedom, even if your kids aren't currently in a failing government school or even if you don't have kids at all, this has effects on the rest of society altogether. And I am super optimistic going forward. Again, parents have woken up. They're the new special interest group in town. And we are going to free families from the depraved clutches of the power-hungry teachers unions once and for all. And there's nothing that they can do about it because parents care about their kids more than anybody else. And they're going to fight as hard as possible right now and going forward. They've woken up. They're never going back to sleep. And uh, that makes me feel good. Everybody should be uh, happy about where we're at with the progress we've made on educational freedom. So if someone's watching or listening to this and they say, man, the general of the education freedom movement 
Corey DeAngelis is someone I want to follow. How do they get involved? What do you need them to do so that we can get this ball across the finish line? You always follow me on Twitter. It's at DeAngelis Corey. I'm probably on there too much. Um, so at DeAngelis Corey on Twitter. But also, if you want to help us in the fight for education freedom, you can go to educationfreedompledge.com where you can follow different bills that are happening in your state. So you can rally around bills that promote parental rights in education or school choice in general. Again, that's educationfreedompledge.com. Corey, thank you for me. Yeah, thank you so much, Kevin. Well, my friends, as I told you, this would be a great episode. We're taking back America. We're doing that with smiles on our faces because we know that America's millions of school children deserve this from us. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for, for being such a great subscriber to this show. And by the way, if you aren't a subscriber, you just happen to listen to this for the first time, please click subscribe. Take care. We'll see you next time. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.